I am in the minority of um, my peers who believe that Bitcoin will become irrelevant. I don't think crypto will become irrelevant, but I believe Bitcoin will become irrelevant over time. And I think other cryptocurrencies will kind of become the global standard. I expect on a long enough time scale, we'll have a handful of digital assets become kind of the, the, the digital reserve asset of, of the global economy. You could argue gold kind of functions in this way today. That's probably correct if you know, beyond the US dollar. But there's a lot of problems with gold, trans- transportability, counterparty risk, storing it, tra- et cetera, divisibility, all these things. I expect there will be at least one, if not a handful of kind of assets globally that are digital reserve assets. And I think cryptocurrencies will, will likely function in, in those regards. That will be, you know, I'm talking on the order of like magnitude of tens of trillions of dollars. So very, very, very large size. The rest of the use cases are much smaller and like we'll see kind of what happens. But there will be there will be cryptocurrencies worth tens of trillions of dollars. Today, we have a special bonus episode. Today's episode is coming from my new Fringe FM podcast, where we explore the edges of human understanding. TED level conversations with TED level speakers, but extended. So I always love TED. You get to hear some of the smartest and most influential and innovative minds in the world. Now we're expanding upon these five to 10 minute conversations and going into a full hour, diving into genetics, space, AI, and the future of humanity. It's very interesting looking into the fringe technologies, especially when it applies to possibly investing in some of the transformational tech of the future. If you're interested, like this episode, go to fringe.fm or fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher. You can find the podcast there and be sure to subscribe. You won't be getting these in your regular feed after the first couple of episodes. Just doing this to make sure that if you really are interested in learning more about the the sci-fi tech of the future, really where we are headed as a a species and really where you should be looking as an angel investor or VC, then fringe.fm. Go there, subscribe, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review if you like it. Again, in any of your podcast players, just search for Fringe FM. All one word, and you should be able to find the show. And now, without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. If you've been following the news at all, terms like Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency are probably on your radar. 2017 was the year of the ICO, when billions of dollars, more even than venture capital, was raised by early-stage entrepreneurs and developers looking to build the Internet 3.0 of the future. Today, we have Kyle Samani, managing partner at Multicoin Capital on the program. Kyle's firm manages one of the larger and more successful crypto hedge funds to date, and also prior to Multicoin, was a founder at Pristine, a company building Google Glass enterprise apps for hospitals and medical workers. Kyle's got a ton of experience in the space, and this is quite a fun interview. I very much enjoyed diving deeper. My background goes through blockchain and cryptocurrencies, currently working on some projects with some very interesting teams, and also find the space incredibly promising yet scammy in many ways. So it was very interesting to get Kyle on to get his perspective. In today's episode, we discuss how Kyle first discovered Ethereum when it was only $10, Kyle's thoughts on the future of augmented reality in IoT, 
why blockchain fundamentally disrupts so many industries, which areas of crypto Kyle and his team are most focused and excited on, why Kyle believes Bitcoin will become irrelevant, how the future of money will not be government-driven, and why decentralization is more important than most people realize. And now, without further ado, I give you Kyle some money. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. For people that are unfamiliar, first, what's blockchain? Let's get a quick overview. Blockchain is, in the simple terms, a database and it, or a ledger. And this ledger, if you think about all kind of traditional databases, someone hosts the ledger. It's typically a company. Sometimes it's a government, but some specific entity hosts the ledger. They may kind of duplicate the ledger for lack of purposes, but there's a single company that controls the ledger, and therefore that single company controls who can access the ledger, who can modify the ledger. They can retroactively change entries in, in the ledger. Matt here. Kyle's brought up a ledger several times. A ledger is the term in economics used to represent money in and money out, looking at the flow, net balances, debits, credits, etc. These are the terms that most economists use, and these are the ways that economics are evaluated. The challenge that Kyle's bringing up here is, while ledger systems may be valuable, they're inherently challenging because other people are managing those systems. So you have to trust the ledger keeper, so to speak. And so if you are interacting with any application that's hosted by a company that's managing a database, fundamentally, you are at the whim of that company, right? You're subject to the will of that company on whatever they do to that database. Blockchain is a new kind of database. It's a database that's completely public. It's completely open. It's not hosted by any one person, but it's hosted and replicated by tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of distrusting parties. And it's a database that no no one can retroactively modify. Everyone who makes an entry to this ledger, to this database, can do so with their own their own kind of sovereign spending of money and no one else can stop them from doing that and you can't reverse transactions. And so it's kind of the first way, uh, it's the first time we've ever had in, in the history of humanity a way for, you know, many, 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 you know, millions or even billions of distrusting parties to aggregate and communicate and transact on a single ledger such that no single third party can intervene. And you brought it up primarily for companies, but it also has major implications for governments as well. Before we dive into that, what is your background? How did you get into blockchain, Bitcoin, and this entire space and found one of the one of the leading crypto funds? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Austin. I started programming when I was pretty young. I got into computers when I was 10 or 11. Uh, I went to NYU to do finance. And after college, I realized I did not want to work on Wall Street. I joke with people that the business school at NYU uh, is basically preschool for Wall Street. And I realized I did not want to go work on go, go, go be a banker. Uh, after college, I ended up coming back home to Austin. I worked for about a year in a company building software and health IT space. And after a year there, I quit and started my own. My first company it was called Pristine. Pristine built software for Google Glass for use by surgeons. Most of you probably remember Google Glass as a not very popular consumer device thing that Google tried. Um, indeed, Glass didn't make a whole lot of sense for consumers, but it did make a lot of sense for people who have a very hands-on job. Uh, and surgeons are kind of the quintessential example of that. So our company really pioneered most of the technology that surgeons were using in the operating room on Google Glass and other smart glass platforms. That company was ultimately acquired, and I found myself unemployed in January of 2016. And I discovered this thing called Ethereum in March of 2016. I was unemployed, and I was figuring out what I was going to do with my life. And I started kind of going down the crypto rabbit hole slowly and then ever faster. And then by the time I reached spring of 2017, I realized I couldn't think about anything other than crypto. And so I made the decision to launch a crypto fund in May of 17. Uh, the fund went live on August 1st of last year, uh, August 1st of 17, with about two and a half million of capital. 
And today we're managing, uh, I guess, across both of our funds now, I think 80, 90 million of capital. So basically, you fell into the rabbit hole. The rabbit hole being, it's hard to get out of the vortex of blockchain because it applies to so many industries. Yeah, my co-founder Tushar calls it the intellectual event horizon. That you know, once you cross that certain point, you just it, you're never going, never going to get out. Interestingly, I feel like I've gotten over the event horizon and gone back. I like to look more now at the the implications of multiple fields, not just blockchain. But I wanted to have you on specifically so we can dive a little bit deeper into it. So essentially, a trustless database that allows people to transact in very new and different ways. Is that a fair summary so far? Yes. Okay, so you got into Ethereum. That must have been incredible. What What was the price point then? That was under 10 bucks. It was under 10 bucks. Ethereum skyrocketed up to 1000 There was a ton of demand. Can you summarize what's been happening in this space, where we are in the hype cycle, and where you see us going? Ethereum is a distributed computer for the world. A system of smart contracting using scripting, i.e. programmable language and programmable money. Ethereum has taken off and become incredibly valuable and to the number two cryptocurrency to date. While Bitcoin is used primarily as a store of value and as a cash alternative, Ethereum has underlying utility and value built in so that individuals can build a web 3.0, if you will, on top of Ethereum. Now we'll jump back to Kyle. Yeah, so I mean, when I first got into Ethereum, people were just starting to kind of play with the first kind of DAP, so to speak. And that first DAP was really this thing called the DAO. This kind of came out in the summer of 2016. Um, and it was basically a, a distributed company or I think a distributed autonomous organization. You can basically think of it as equity in a company. People pool their capital into this company and then vote on what they want to do with this capital. And so this was kind of the first real thing that happened on top of Ethereum. And it went really, really terribly, horribly wrongly and exploded and fell on its face. That ultimately resulted in a hard fork, which produced Ethereum Classic. So, so that was kind of the first real experience I had with Ethereum. The funny thing is that, like, as this was happening, I realized that Ethereum was working exactly as it was designed. So although the price, I think the price crashed about 40 or 50 percent um, in the wake of all the kind of the Dow fork nonsense. But when this happened, I realized I was like, hey, like, this thing is working. So I kind of kept doubling down and buying more. The Dow is very interesting and Kyle doesn't provide a lot of context. So we can add to that. So with the DAO, what happened was there was a bug in the smart contract, a smart contract being code that's executable as if law. With that, in reference to money, it can be very, very important. Here with Ethereum, the DAO, there was a flaw in the code whereby hackers were able to steal a large percentage of the money in the entire Ethereum ecosystem. It would be akin to Bank of America going and stealing all of your money. It's hard to it's hard to conceptualize because with physical money versus crypto representations of money, it's much easier to accumulate vast sums of cash. The system was compromised. Money was stolen from this smart contract. And then all of these Ethereum holders were left suddenly with nothing. When you have most people losing just about everything, they get a bit desperate. So what happened was the Ethereum community decided to hard fork, i.e. revert back to previous code. Because here code is money, you can just do control Z. And as it's called a hard fork, both groups go their separate ways and carry on merrily. Now, ultimately, it doesn't usually work out so civilly. This is something where there are politics involved, there is money involved, so it can be quite complicated process with politicking left and right to try to promote different chains of the blockchain because whichever has the dominance, realistically will have the majority of the value, the majority of the value, meaning appreciation for the token owners versus losses, meaning let's go back. 
since then, Ethereum has like started to like have a kind of a, a hype. You know, the next kind of major app that was discovered for Ethereum was Capital Formation, and that was really as direct kind of ICOs with the the manifestation of that. So Augur was one of our very first ICOs that happened on Ethereum, and then in spring of 2017, you started seeing all kinds of new ICOs. Things like Cosmos were early, Bancor, uh, basic attention token. Tezos, all these things were kind of spring, summer 2017. And that just kind of kept accelerating through the fall. And so all this kind of capital formation happens. People bet on all these crazy new things. And now we're in 2018 and we're starting to see the teams that were forming as a, as a function of that capital formation are now starting to release real world applications. So, you know, live here just went live on mainnet. I believe it was on May 1st or May 2nd. Uh, Funfair went live on mainnet a week or two ago. For people that uh, aren't familiar with mainnet. Yeah, sorry. So all of these, all of these different applications, uh, are now, they're live. They're out in the real world and people can interact with them with real money and do real things in real time on the Ethereum blockchain. So that's kind of been the progression over the last, call it two years. And the idea being now that we're able to transact and have currency and payment type systems built online, we can get out of the attention or advertising economy and into something more like a basin attention economy. I mean, that's certainly a division for the folks at Basic Attention Token. I, I am really not familiar enough with the advertising industry and kind of all of its pitfalls and nuances to really get, you know, what is the path forward. If, in fact, the kind of right answer is micropayments, then crypto is likely the enabling technology for this to, to happen. I'm not personally convinced that micropayments are necessarily the right answer, but I, I know very little about publishers, business models, media, advertising. Um, that's a very different sector that I'm just not familiar with. So to date, cryptocurrencies have been primarily, the primary use case has been speculation and capital formation or raising money. Where do you see, where do you see us moving as we progress in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I think crypto is going to start to, the, the first kind of applications we're going to see are what I'll call crypto native applications. So uh, Augur is a great example. Augur is a prediction market that really is uniquely enabled by blockchain. We look at Funfair. Funfair is a great example. Online gambling has really uh, always been a very challenging problem because you had to trust that the casino operator was actually not, not screwing the, the consumer. So there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of interesting gray markets. So look at what Spank Chain is doing. Look at the marijuana industry. There's all these kind of like fringe use cases and then all these, I'll call them crypto native use cases. So crypto kitties and let's call it just digital collectibles. These are all pretty obvious crypto native types of things. I expect to see these kind of continue to trickle out over the remainder of 2018 and then probably get just a tidal wave of them in 2019. The other kind of major obvious area I see for crypto in the immediate future in terms of kind of end user app, in terms of call it new applications, um, is uh, called cloud, cloud computing infrastructure. So this is kind of Filecoin is the uh, most famous example here. But there are a lot of others, people like Golem, Hypernet, uh, Core and I, a few others that are all pursuing this concept of uh, basically Airbnb for various resources on your computer. Uh, I think that's it's a pretty powerful concept. And we're going to start to see uh, various forms of that manifest in, in a major way uh, over the next year or two as well. Beyond that, it's, it's harder to kind of forecast. But like there's some pretty obvious early bowling pins here of things that can happen. And we'll kind of see how these things aggregate and tumble and snowball over time into, into new things. In your opinion, how much of the action have we seen has been just fear of missing out or FOMO, both from a developer and investor side? And how much has been the actual potential? Yeah, I mean, I think most people, if they, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, and I fully admit I, I drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago, they see the kind of massive potential of these things. But it's just very clear that like the demand, especially on the investor side, has kicked in far well before that the technologies were really ready. I and mean, that kind of resulted in the Q4. I mean, they're really... 2017 in general was crazy, but in particular, Q4 
before 2017 when the markets were just kind of out of control. And, and so, you know, we're, we've been seeing a cooling off and we're letting these things kind of mature and bake. That, that's probably healthy overall for the ecosystem. You know, so demand from investors clearly is there. The thing with capital is capital moves very quickly. Getting people to build stuff just takes a while. You have to get teams together. You have to recruit people. You've got to build stuff. You've got to make mistakes and iterate. That, that just takes longer. And so, you know, developers, I, I think over the last six to nine months, a large percentage of the world's talent has looked at this crypto thing and they weren't really taking it seriously before. And they said, okay, maybe there's something here. And there's a lot of incredibly talented developers who are leaving Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, etc., and saying, okay, let's go build some crazy crypto stuff. And so that's just started to happen over the last few months. And I expect that to continue to accelerate for the foreseeable future. Especially because when there is money tied into what you're building, it becomes significantly more exciting. It has built-in network effects. You discussed, uh, you brought up distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs earlier. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the implications for the future of companies and governance. Yeah. So, I mean, at the, the kind of most simplistic view is that DAOs are just a way to circumvent governments in terms of basically forming an LLC or forming a C-Corp and using a DAO as a way to aggregate capital and then kind of manage, you know, pay people and, and you know, have stock certificates and those kinds of things. So that, that's kind of like the most elementary view of what you can do with the blockchain. And I think there's validity to that. I'm not sure it's that revolutionary. I mean, it, it's helpful. Don't get me wrong. I'm always all for getting rid of lawyers and kind of other administrative overhead that basically the blockchain gives you all this stuff for free. So I think that's all good and well. But over time, I expect we're going to see kind of new models emerge uh, that kind of allow people to interact with each other based on just how a protocol dictates economic incentives will work. Uh, my favorite kind of example of this is Augur. Augur in and of itself is not a DAO, but it, but it kind of sort of functions like one in a very unique way. So Augur is a prediction market, and it's a prediction market that is a decentralized oracle system. And so what this means is if you and I want to bet on, let's say, a basketball game, let's say we bet on the score of the Cavs and the Warriors playing tonight, like we need, you know, if you think about it, like the kind of system needs to do three things. You need a way for the two parties to have price discovery and like enter into a contract. You need to, once the game is over, you need to go to get the score of the game. And then you need to be able to wait to actually pay people right at the end of the game. Those are kind of sort of your major functions to make a prediction market work. And, and so the, the hardest part, one of these problems is actually getting the score of the game. The blockchain in and of itself has, has no way of going to NBA.com and, and getting the score of the game. Even if it did have a way of going to NBA.com, then there's the next question of, well, what if during the moment that you went to NBA.com, Let's say they, they were compromised and like the server like was playing, displaying the wrong score. You need some sort of fallback mechanism or some sort of right way to make sure the bit gets resolved correctly, even if the server in which you get the data from has been temporarily compromised. And so Augur provides a way to do this in a decentralized way. The way this basically works is that after a given a prediction market, after a prediction kind of, um, a predict, a, after a given market is concluded, the system basically asks a small subset of people who own the Augur token to basically go vote on the outcome and say, hey, what happened in the real world? And if, one, and if the loser of the bets ends up saying, hey, those, those Augur token holders are lying, they're colluding and reporting a false outcome, they can basically challenge the system. And the system kind of has like, I think, a three-step process. Think of it like a circuit court, a appeals court, and Supreme Court kind of a thing in which you kind of call on increasingly larger pools of Augur token holders. And if you are on the losing side of each step of the debate, then you can uh, challenge and go up to the next one. You have to put up a deposit or something. But anyways, what's really cool about the system is that the Augur system creates a way for all the people who own rep tokens to come together, even though they have no idea who one another are, they have no idea, who, like they don't even care who the other people are, 
but it creates an economic incentive model for everyone to vote uh, on the truth. Uh, because if you actually vote and you're on the minority side of the vote, then you actually get you actually lose some of the, your tokens. You get slashed, and so you basically kind of the system works on the idea that everyone will vote on the truth, and as long as everyone votes on the truth, then like it's fine. And they actually get rewarded for doing so. There's some fees in the system that uh, that compensate these people. And so the, the beautiful part of the system though is right, like we have never in the history of humanity had a way for thousands or millions of people who have no idea who each other are all over the planet to come together and actually have an economic incentive to vote on the truth. Like that concept has never existed. And I expect that that kind of a concept is going to create all kinds of crazy new things that will happen in the world, new kinds of prediction markets, new kinds of ways to bet on who knows what. And like the ways to basically dictate, you know, design a protocol and say, hey, this protocol dictates how all of these distrusting parties will behave like that. That is going to unlock new kinds of economic activity and behavior that was just literally never possible before. While I, for one, am a believer in blockchain and its ability to disrupt the incumbents, there are inherently challenges. So with Algor and other prediction-type markets, you can see very easily where suddenly we get into an assassination ring where someone set up a market that so-and-so will die, and because so-and-so will die and people have staked money on it, suddenly have people that were not initially hitmen having money on the line in terms of whether or not someone will die. Then we get into... a uh, Assassin's Creed type of scenario where you now are economically incentivized to go kill someone. Now, those are some of the negative consequences. We talked primarily about the positive consequences. The positive ones, I believe, significantly outweigh the negatives, but it's always good to bring up a counterpoint as well. And in my opinion, the most obvious implication would be the effect of government, because as you have people starting to self-govern in a swarm type mentality, it changes the dynamics a bit. How do you see, how do you see humanity progressing? Are you an anarchist? Are you a libertarian? Do you think we're kind of going to blend things together into a hybrid? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't have strong views on like how this stuff impacts the real world governments. I think that's, that's so far out and like it's just so intertwined and complicated. Uh, I don't have any material views there. Um, I did write a, write a blog post I think last fall, called August, September of last year. It's, it's on the Multipoint website. It's called Blockchain, the New Social Order. And, and in that, I don't try and like tackle the politics of like le- libertarianism versus socialism versus whatever. But I do bring up this kind of interesting notion that blockchains do allow you, in some cases, to get rid of the middleman and basically return to socialist era or socialist inspired um, economic models. My favorite example of this is insurance. If you think about it right, as a consumer, when you purchase insurance, insurance is explicitly a negative EV product or a negative effective value product. And you, you know, this is due to the fact that the insurance company takes profit margins and due to the fact that the insurance company has costs that kind of maintain the business. And if you got rid of the cost, or you got rid of the profit margin, then, then purchasing insurance would be a, an EV neutral decision. Uh, the cool thing about crypto is that you can imagine creating insurance, basically think of them as co-ops that have very little of any expenses and that have no profit margins. And so you could have a pool of people get together, commit to some sort of contractual uh, contractual insurance policy, people pay their premiums in, you have this pool of capital, and the pool of capital pays out based on the policies, you know, that all the people got. I mean, you can totally imagine that that will happen. And you now kind of go to this weird world where like, the ultimate manifestation of capitalism is this like weird, like, you know, communistic, socialistic, like co-op thing. But that's actually kind of the logical conclusion here. You could make a great joke about insurance agents needing job insurance. I'm sure most would laugh as insurance is one of the most hated industries on earth for just that 
particular reason being a, a net negative on society when it comes to cash value and value accrued to the users. You could look at Uber and eBay and Airbnb and kind of come to the same general conclusions, but those guys are just kind of raking fees. I, I think it's a little bit harder in those cases because the businesses provide a real service. But like insurance is just literally a statistical machines. Like money goes in, money goes out. And like the business doesn't fundamentally do anything. And, and so I really like insurance as kind of this concept of like thinking about how if you take capitalism to its most logical extreme, you actually produce things that look very anti-capitalistic. The implications for that, like beyond in terms of society and governments, uh, it's it, this is clearly going to challenge a lot of existing assumptions and norms. What the outcomes of those challenges are is like, I don't know. The insurance model looks very similar to what other societies have in terms of alternative banking as well, where they have pool-based banking or other systems where the community collaborates, someone gets the money every week, etc., to go buy bigger, more important things. But I want to I wanna transition a little bit. So you said you were working at Pristine, a relatively successful startup that you started in the IoT and AR space. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a pretty modest outcome. After, after Google, basically, end of the glass project, uh, we had some major challenges. And we ultimately, you know, the company was acquired, but it was, it was a very modest outcome. Okay. Either way, it, it's still interesting experience and becoming more interesting. Where do, you, where do you see us headed now and any interesting intersections with those spaces and the blockchain stuff that you're working on today? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of two... There's a few people working on the idea of kind of VR blockchain world, which I think are super interesting. I think the most high profile example of this is called Decentraland. And they are basically creating, you know, more or less second life in virtual reality world. And the idea is like in this virtual reality, there's a fixed amount of real estate and you can buy this real estate. So there's kind of two tokens in our system. One's called mana, one's called land. I won't get into details of like how the system interacts, but basically if you believe that like VR worlds or like second life type worlds will be a thing, maybe believe that those worlds may want to have some notion of fixed real estate, then in which case like second, uh, what the central land is doing is could be very interesting where the entire world itself lives on the blockchain and people can interact, do commerce, have, you know, virtual parks, virtual houses, virtual museums, whatever in a, you know, fixed coordinate, right, grid basically. So I think that's super interesting. It's obviously very early stage, very speculative, but I think it's super cool. And I'm, I'm quite close with the team there. They have some really talented people. There are a few others that are, I know, competing with them, although I think some of the other ones are in stealth mode. So there's kind of that group. And then the other kind of really, I think, obvious cool thing is like think Pokemon Go, but on blockchain. I think there's a real compelling value proposition to the idea of being able to own your own your own objects and not being like if you were play Pokemon Go, like if anything happens to Nintendo, if their servers go down, if they choose to move in a different direction, like they can basically kind of sort of wipe your game or like manipulate the game however they want to. And you don't actually own the Pokemon that you found. I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities to bring AR, scavenger hunt, find things, and then use those for sort of games to battle for kind of consumers to be able to do that on their own at the intersection of AR in the in which and in a way in which the items in the virtual world are you know the sovereignty and ownership of those is, is controlled by blockchain i expect with a high degree of certainty that that will happen i don't know which games or verticals or types are going to be the first ones that figure it out but there's a lot of really really cool stuff to have to do there so i'm quite excited about the intersection of those i think that stuff is still a little bit further out in terms of mass market adoption but the opportunities are, are clearly pretty cool Discuss the implications of digital scarcity because it's not something most have considered but you can you can download any movies you want you can download music it's killed a couple industries. Blockchain seemingly is a, a good solution here. Yeah, I mean, so digital scarcity, if you think about, like, why people value things in the world, like, kind of sort of fundamentally, it's because they're scarce. Think about oil. I mean, oil is function, is, right, uh, price is a function of 
supply and demand, given there's a fixed amount of this stuff coming out over time. But obviously, oil is more or less a commodity with a few, few tweaks and exceptions, but it's you know, kind of sort of a commodity. Whereas if you look at things like, let's say, art, you look at things like custom T-shirts, customized anything, people tend to pay a lot more money for things that are cut, cut your custom homes. Any, anything that's custom, that's you know one of a kind or one of a very few, people tend to pay a lot more for because it's a way for them to express themselves. And and so, you know, like scarcity fundamentally is valuable because just less of it means if, if there's someone who wants it or many people that wants it, supply is fixed, demand goes up. Prices go up. So, so I think there's a lot of value kind of fundamental to that concept. In software, traditionally, it's been very difficult. It's not impossible to enforce any, any notion of digital scarcity uh, because in software, you can always just kind of press command C um, and, and copy things. That was obviously the breakthrough of Bitcoin was a way to have basically be able to solve this problem of double spending in software. Uh, and now we're seeing that same kind of concept applied to all kinds of other very interesting objects. And what would you say, if you had to guess, will be the, the largest lasting impact from Bitcoin? Will this ultimately become a world currency? Will this be a movement? Will this be like AOL? Yeah, so I mean, I am, I am in the minority of um, my peers who believe that Bitcoin will become irrelevant. I don't think crypto will become irrelevant, but I believe Bitcoin will become irrelevant over time. And I think other cryptocurrencies will kind of become the global standard. I expect on a long enough time scale, we'll have a handful of digital assets that become kind of the, the, the digital reserve asset of, of the global economy. You could argue gold kind of functions in this way today. That's probably correct if you know, beyond the U.S. dollar. But there's a lot of problems with gold, trans, transportability, counterparty risk, storing it, tra- etc., divisibility, all these things. I expect there will be at least one, if not a handful of kind of assets globally that are digital reserve assets. And I think cryptocurrencies will, will likely function in, in those regards. And that will, you know, I'm talking on the order of like magnitude of tens of trillions of dollars. So very, very, very large size. The rest, the use cases are much smaller and like we'll see kind of what happens. But there will be there will be cryptocurrencies worth tens of trillions of dollars. Government backed cryptocurrencies? Uh, I mean, freestanding permissionless ones, not government backed. Interesting. How do you see that playing out with uh, with the dichotomy with government? I mean, I mean, today, right? Like, so just the gold, right? All the gold in the world is worth seven trillion dollars today. Crypto, very clearly, if you just assume crypto replaces gold and assume nothing else takes off, and in crypto, like, that's kind of seven trillion dollars of market cap. Maybe let's say crypto only takes half or half of that, not even all of it. That's three and a half trillion. But then the next kind of step is, well, is this market expansionary? And the very obvious answer is yes. The number of people on the planet who own gold is, is actually quite small, and there's a lot of reasons for that: the visibility, counterparty risk, storage, etc. Crypto, you know, Bitcoin or any of the other crypt- the cryptocurrencies, by definition, is just orders of magnitude better in terms of kind of basic usability properties. And so, very, it's very obvious to me that the Bitcoin or crypto generally is, is very market expansionary, just for the use case of digital gold. Because if you look at just that use case alone, that already gets you to tens of trillions. And then if you go layer on all these other really interesting things, like decentralized compute and trust and identity models and, and who knows what else, like the market size gets very, very large. It gets very large, but how do you see value capture versus value creation in a, in a crypto market with different protocols? Yeah, I mean, so this varies a lot if you, as you think about the application layer versus the kind of the base layer protocols. So this is like Ethereum versus a, a token built on top of Ethereum is kind of the easy word thing about this. It is our, it is our view that the base layer protocols will be the most valuable protocols in these, in these systems and that they will kind of capture the most value because basically they will come, become, they will become a global money thing that is used as some sort of store value the government can manipulate. I wanted to point out something Kyle says here. 
Money that governments can't manipulate. Today, printing of money is controlled by a Federal Reserve or a central bank or even private entities. So in the US, the Fed controls this. And this is something where they print more money to stimulate the economy. Printing more money leads to inflation, meaning your money buys less bread, milk, cheese, and all the good stuff at the grocery store year after year, typically in the neighborhood of a couple percent, which is why when you look at things 50, 100 years ago, you could buy a house for $2,000, $3,000, etc. because the inflation has made your money significantly less worthwhile. This is one of the major driving factors for a lot of the blockchain and cryptocurrency movement is people that want to take their money out of this inflationary system and try to have something that's based more on value. And that perhaps is used for some sort of like large-scale global commerce. It's our view that that will, will happen at the base layer. Basically, the only way to justify these kinds of valuations is, is if they become a, a global digital money thing. For most other cryptocurrencies, they are going to challenge to... They, they may create a lot of value. They may not capture a lot of value. But if it becomes the global digital money thing, then by definition, it captures value because it's the global digital money thing. Are you someone who's willing to put a time frame on that? I, I don't have a strong sense on like when these things work or how they work. I mean, there's too many variables. There's too many variables. So what resources, blogs, podcasts, etc. are you looking to on a daily, weekly basis to stay informed? You know, like my favorite resources are probably there's a blog called Token Economy. They publish on Sundays. It's fantastic. If you're looking for just daily news cycles, Coindesk is okay. I may, I curate a number of, I curate personally a number of Twitter lists that I encourage anyone to subscribe to. There's three. One is very focused on traders. One is kind of got about six, seven hundred people on it. It's a little bit noisy. And another one's much smaller with sixty or seventy people on it. So I kind of curate three lists. You can subscribe to those. I think the Multipoint blog is one of the best sources of information in, in the space. Uh, Bitmax produces a great a great blog as well. Those are kind of the first places that come to mind. So I know you've gone down the rabbit hole, but what other industries are you also interested in, either tangentially or just from afar? You know, I'm still really interested in healthcare and like quantified self. I think there's a lot of opportunity and value there. If I wasn't doing crypto, I would probably be doing something in, in that space. My like long, the idea I always wanted to pursue and I've never had the, the kind of means to, to do so. I've always wanted to figure out a way to do passive calorie tracking. I think, you know, this would likely be some sort of medical device or something. I don't know. It would be an implant or in your tongue or under teeth. I, I don't really know the, the chemistry or how it would work. I just feel like you can't manage what you can't measure. And like measuring caloric intake is an extremely painful problem. Um, and it's obviously very expensive for society that we can't do this in a, in a kind of seamless, easy way. So that's always been like my one like dream thing I've always wanted to go and do. I've never, never really focused on it enough or, or tried to pull it off, but. I expect at some point in my lifetime, someone will put a lot of money into it and try to figure it out. I know if you walk into an Amazon Go store, you want to buy something, they have scanners that will scan everything and tell you exactly what you need to pay immediately. I know they can also do similar things. I wonder if you could use uh, a phone and just have it on the table and scan what you're eating and see everything that disappears and calculate a basic a basic number. That could be interesting, actually. Yeah, there's definitely people who have tried to do this with, with AI. My sense is those teams... I think you can probably get a very crude estimate doing that, and that's probably the MVP. You know, the question is, how do you go from there? Uh, if you want to make it truly passive, but like that's, that's certainly the first obvious step. I feel like you don't have to make it truly passive, though, because if you're off by roughly the same amount every time, then at the very least, you're able to see changes over time. Well, that's one angle, but the other is just people forget. Okay. Like, that's, that's, that's the way to make it truly passive, is you go in once, you get, you get a thing under teeth, and then a week later, you just get a report. Okay, that uh, we may need something implanted into the gut at that point. 
So what uh, what are you doing outside of work these days? What's keeping you busy? So, I mean, I, I go to Orange Theory for, for going to stay in shape. I play Ultimate Frisbee every now and again. I live in Texas. It is very hot this time of year in Texas. I love the heat. I make a very active effort to go to a body of water every single weekend, either a pool, a lake, a river or something, and enjoy that with my friends. Do you meditate or have any other type of performance enhancement that you think you should share? Uh, I don't I do not do do meditation at all. I, I still play video games. I play probably 20 minutes a day. I find it's very uh, helpful. I, I think fitness is probably the best thing. I get up at about 5.45 most mornings and, and go to Orange Theory. It just kicks my ass, and I find it's a very good way to start the day. Is that like a CrossFit or a gym? Uh, Orange Theory is like CrossFit. Less weights, more cardio. Okay, very cool. So part of part of what we're trying to do with Fringe FM is to push people to think bigger and explore more meaningful challenges. My ask for you now is what would you ask of the audience? A challenge, a thought, something you want to leave them with to look into, create, etc. I don't try and imagine a world in which the government isn't all powerful. I don't have a good thing for you to replace on what could be the new powerful thing in place. Maybe it's nothing. But just trying to imagine a world in which governments don't have total control of the world. And that's a very, very an interesting future and one worth striving for. And that's kind of fundamentally like what crypto enables um, on a long enough time scale. There's all kinds of you know science fiction and stuff that's written about the history of governments that you can dive into if you're curious. But I really encourage people to try and think, hey, what if what if I didn't have what if the government, you know, wasn't the all powerful thing that it is? The biggest problem there, of course, is the monopoly on force. Monopoly on force and then on money. Those are the two ways in which governments, you know, it's the ways which they enforce their hegemony. I hear one of those is falling apart as we speak. I hope so. I think so. So what's your favorite? You said sci-fi. Were you a big sci-fi person growing up? I wasn't a big sci-fi person. I just played a lot of video games. So. Any that were particularly inspiring on your future outlooks? Oh, God. I don't know. I mean, I, I like I liked puzzle games a lot. Like, I love the Zeldas and the Marios, the Metroids, and, like, things where you get to explore and, like, figure out what to do um, and how to, like, figure out how to navigate through whatever. Uh, I love those kinds of things because they, they, you know, every one of these universes is constructed. You have some set of rules about how you can navigate the universe, and then you have to figure out a way to... You know, overcome the challenge or obstacle. I really love those those kinds of games. Uh, I think they kind of teach you to think in unique ways and try to, you know, whenever I'm in a situation, uh, try to always understand, hey, what are the bounds of my universe, so to speak, and then what are all the ways I can operate in it. I really liked those kinds of games a lot. I was never much of a fan of shooters or racing or sports or those things. I always loved exploration games. Basically, going for the adventure. Do you think that's what led you to blockchain? How did how did you feel that you got pulled here? No, I think how I got pulled here was a combination of luck and, um, and statistical brute force. So I, um, I was, I left Pristine in January of 2016. And after spending about a month playing video games, uh, I was like, okay, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do with myself. And I'm, I've never been one who's good with coming up with ideas. I've always been much better at refining ideas that are in front of me. And so I just started going through AngelList and I went through, I think a hundred companies a day was my, my number. And I just picked, you know, every day I pick a different category, clean tech, pharma this, biotech that consumer social this, you know, whatever, and we just go through 100 companies a day and just look at all the different ideas out there. And most of the companies I'd spend, you know, 30 seconds on. And if I was more intrigued, I'd go poke into that further. And there was some, I don't even remember which company it was I ran into. But there was some company I ran into that was building on top of Ethereum. Um, and I ran into this company in, in early March of 2016. 
And I was like, what's Ethereum? And then that's kind of what led me down the rabbit hole. So a combination of luck and discovery force is how I got here. What would you say to people? Oftentimes you fall into something. It's not necessarily what you do truly want to do. It's something more that you fell into and are a good fit for. What would you say for people? Not in terms of well-being or happiness per se, but in terms of making sure that they're tackling the right mission. So I'm a big believer in statistical brute force, basically doing what I did with Angelist. Um, like, it's very hard to figure out what you want. But if you start going into a subject and you realize you're just like very interested, then that's kind of a good sign. So like doing what I do with Angelist, basically pick X number of companies a day, 10, 50, 100, whatever, and just go through there and think about them, think about what their mission is, think about, hey, after eight seconds of thinking, if you think they're stupid for some reason and you have high conviction after eight seconds, or, you know, as high a conviction as you could have, given that it's been eight seconds, and you think whether something is wrong, right, that's always interesting to go and explore and think about that and kind of dive from there. Uh, I'm a really big believer in get, I, I consider myself kind of just an information processor, like you just put as much information in front of me as possible and let me digest it. That That's very much how I work. That may not work for everyone, but that has been a, a very successful way for, for me to operate. And then you use writing for synthesizing? Uh, I love writing. Yeah, I've been writing since 2013. I've written probably between three and 400 now essays, mostly technology, sales, crypto, entrepreneurship type stuff. But yes, writing is a, how I kind of synthesize all my thoughts. Where is the best place for people to connect with you online, Kyle? Uh, Twitter. I'm very colorful and active on Twitter. Uh, you can find my Twitter account is just my name, Kyle Samani. And I also encourage you to check out the Multicoin blog. I publish a lot of stuff on the Multicoin blog. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And thanks for thanks for doing this again. Have a great day. All right, take care, Matt. Bye-bye. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.